following discussion was recorded on the 21st of June, 2018. Hello, we're here today to discuss the implications of a recent judgment of the Outer House in the Quarter Session concerning claimants in the Employment Tribunal, where those claimants might be worried that even if they ultimately succeed in their Employment Tribunal claim, they may have difficulty enforcing the award because their employer has taken steps to frustrate that claim, uh, for instance, by moving or dissipating assets, removing them from the business. So to discuss this case with me today is Lindsay Reynolds. Lindsay, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Julius. I'm Lindsay Reynolds. I'm a senior solicitor at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. The Commission intervened in this case. We instructed case Brigham QC, and we'll hear a little bit more about that intervention shortly. And I'm Julius Komarovsky, advocate. I was junior counsel instructed to represent the government in the case that we're about to discuss. So that case is AA against the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. It was decided by Lord Tyra in the Outer House on the 1st of July 2018. Now that case is subject to a reclaiming motion, but uh, for the time being at least it represents a decision of importance from the Court of Session about the availability of diligence on the dependence to employment tribunal claimants. So let's begin by discussing the circumstances of the petitioner in AA. Lindsay, could you tell us something about her employment tribunal claim? Yes, well, to go back to the beginning, the petitioner had been awarded over £75,000 compensation by the employment tribunal, and that was for sexual and religious harassment, contrary to the Equality Act 2010. Now, she says that by the time the tribunal's judgment was issued and could be enforced, most of her former employer's assets had been moved elsewhere. Now, we know that the Employment Tribunal does not have any power to allow a respondent's assets to be frozen whilst the claim is ongoing. So in that way, it's different from the Sheriff Court, which can grant diligence on the dependence, which we're going to hear more about shortly. Now, the petitioner AA she complained that because the Employment Tribunal lacked any sort of power to give interim protection for a monetary claim, that she then lacked an effective remedy in terms of European Union law. So how did the Equality and Human Rights Commission come to be involved in this case? Well, the Commission has a range of legal powers, but we can only use them in a small number of cases each year. So for this reason, we prioritise cases in line with our litigation, uh, strategic litigation policy and uh, strategic priorities. So in this case, the Commission felt that the implications of the case went beyond its own facts. It had much wider implications for other people. We know from a study carried out by the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills shortly before the introduction of fees and quoted by Lord Reid in unison, that only 53% of claimants who were successful before the Employment Tribunal were paid even part of the award prior to taking any enforcement action. And there are statistics available which show that in Scotland there's a similar picture. So for that reason, we applied and were granted permission to intervene. And in that intervention, we argued that the lack of the powers we've discussed uh, contravened Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights and Article 21 of the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. And that prohibits discrimination on any ground in the implementation of EU law. And that, of course, includes the equality directives. Now, we don't plan to focus on that line of argument today, as it's more urgent that advisors are aware of what Lord Tyre said in the Outer House about the availability of this remedy, as the Commission was not and is not aware of it having been used before. So, Julius, could you tell us a little bit more about that aspect of the decision? 
Yes. So Lord Tyre's decision is a detailed judgment covering a number of interesting legal points, but essentially it comes down to two steps. First, Lord Tyre held that an employment tribunal claimant could raise proceedings in the Sheriff Court seeking diligence on the dependents in order to secure the pending employment tribunal claim. And second, he held that because of this, that overall an employment tribunal claimant had a sufficiency of remedies to comply with the requirements of European Union law as well as the European Convention on Human Rights. So we've heard a lot about diligence on the dependents. Uh, could you give us a refresher on what that means? So diligence on the dependents comes in two forms, uh, inhibition and arrestment. Uh, diligence just means steps taken to collect a debt or enforce a judgment. And it's diligence on the dependents in this case because it is tied in with another litigation. That's something what's meant by on the dependents. So when we use the phrase in this context with the sorts of situation that confronted AA, what we're anticipating is an employment tribunal claimant raising uh, proceedings in the sheriff court and asking the court to freeze assets so that if the tribunal claim succeeds, those assets can be used to satisfy the employment tribunal judgment. And so could you clarify some of the terminology as a, a refresher, for example, on inhibition and arrestment? Inhibition is a method used to freeze land. It would prohibit the respondent and defender from selling their land or from granting security over it. And so that simply protects the land so it can be realised to pay off a judgment. Now, perhaps more frequently, um, we would be concerned with arrestment, and arrestment covers any movable property. But the most common example of this would be uh, freezing money held in a bank account. But it can cover any property of the respondent which is held by a third party. Claimants can raise parallel proceedings in the sheriff court. Now, there's clearly expense implications, so claimants would need to weigh up the risks in not raising those parallel proceedings against the potential benefits of doing so. So I think there needs to be a discussion at an early stage about the, the risk or the likelihood that uh, assets may be moved or dissipated and claimants will need to be advised that there is this option for the parallel action at this early stage. Now in practical terms, Julius, how would you advise a claimant or an advisor solicitor to go about this? Well, the first thing you need to give some thought to is what sum do you put in the document which you're lodging with the Sheriff Court, for instance, the initial writ. Because you won't know what exact figure typically um, that you will be awarded by the Employment Tribunal at this stage. So you'll need to uh, come to some sort of view as to what is the highest figure you could reasonably expect to obtain. Uh, so that might require some careful assessment, but that's not fundamentally a different task from what a litigant in the Sheriff Court would have to perform when uh, seeking diligence in, on the dependence in respect of an action for personal injuries or a claim for breach of contract when one is seeking damages. In those instances, one will not have a precise figure in mind as to what one will obtain if successful. So one has to come to some broad assessment and put that figure in the writ. And the figure you put in uh, 
has a relationship with the maximum sum which you can seek uh, arrestment for. And the other matter which you want to pay some attention to when it comes to drafting, I think, is to mention in the writ that the proceedings are being used solely to obtain diligence on the dependents. Just to make it clear to the court and to your opponent that this isn't being used as some means of uh, determining the merits of the employment tribunal claim. You're not going to be inviting the sheriff to find that you've been uh, racially discriminated against. That, or, so that remains for the tribunal. That remains for the tribunal. That's not a concern for the court. The court's just being used as a means of uh, protecting assets and a way of aiding enforcement of an anticipated employment tribunal award. So you'd raise it and assist it? Once you had the application for diligence on the dependence dealt with, yes, you'd assist the action. You don't want to press it to a conclusion. And so let me say a little bit about applying for diligence on the dependence. Um, of course, in ordinary court proceedings, eventually the, the proceedings get intimated to the other side. Uh, but the nature of diligence on independence is that it might be used against a respondent who you think uh, may be tempted to act inappropriately by seeking to hide their assets. And so you might want to get those protective measures in place before they have an opportunity to do anything. Mm -hmm. So the point that's worth emphasising is that you can r raise the action and apply for diligence on independence, and you don't need to intimate either of those things to the defender before the court considers your application. You can apply to the court to ask them to consider granting you diligence on the dependence uh, before any hearing takes place and before any notice is given to the defender. And the other side of that is that if you are uh, granted diligence on the dependence without a hearing, then a hearing will be fixed uh, to Very review. After. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, to review whether that diligence should remain in place. Okay, so clearly not all applications are going to be granted. What tests will the court apply in determining the, the application? There's a threefold test, and it's set out in the Debtors Scotland Act 1987 as amended, and the relevant provisions in the Act run from Section 15A onwards. But the threefold test is as follows. One is you need to show a prima facie case. Second, that there's a real and substantial risk to enforcement. And third, that's reasonable in all the circumstances. A prima facie case just means a good arguable case. You don't need to show that you're bound to win or even necessarily that you're likely to win. A real and substantial risk uh, to enforcement might arise because the employer or former employer is insolvent or is verging on insolvency. Or it might be because uh, the respondent has been taking steps to dissipate or to hide its assets. Then the third requirement, which is something of a catch-all, reasonable in all the circumstances, that might take in the strength of your case. So is it just on the borderline of being prima facie case or is it, uh, it apparently a potentially overwhelming uh, case? And what would be the implications of granting arrestment? Would it uh, put out of use uh, important assets for the business which would make it impossible to keep the business running and if it would then you may find that you've got an uphill struggle in obtaining diligence on independence. So it sounds like you might need to front load your your application with lots of documentary evidence. What sort of productions might you want to provide the court with? You want to be able to demonstrate to the court 
what your employment tribunal claim is about, what its, its apparent strengths are, and also why you fear enforcement of the award, if an award is obtained, might be difficult. So regarding the claim before the employment tribunal, naturally you need to lodge the ET1. If an ET3, that's a reply by the respondent, if that's been lodged, then you should lodge that as well. There may be other documents which help shed light on the claim, such as, for instance, contract of employment. Regarding the willingness and ability of the respondent to ultimately pay up, uh, you would want to ideally put before the court information regarding the respondent's finances. So annual reports on a company from company's house. Uh, you could obtain a report from a credit reference agency. Um, there may be other reasons to be concerned as to whether the uh, respondent will pay up. So if you see an advert listed for the main premises of the of the employer, then that might be something that rings alarm bells. And if you can put in documentary evidence of the to the court, then that might be something of interest to a sheriff. There might be other information that you have to hand uh, formally or informally, perhaps from uh, working there, you might know that the company was struggling to pay its suppliers. If you can relay information about that and any documentary evidence to support that, then that is something that could be potentially valuable. So it sounds like the best advice is to stay in touch with your former colleagues and do some creative thinking about what evidence you can provide the court. Uh, if you want to read more about how Lord Tyre reached that conclusion that this remedy exists, that you can raise these parallel proceedings, then the judgment can be found on the Scott Court's website and the citation is 2018 CSOH 54. And you can find a link to that judgment plus links to other potentially useful information with the notes to this podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, and thanks for listening. The music by Lee Rosevear features here by virtue of a Creative Commons license. For more details, go to the show notes for this podcast. Music